where does Donald Trump derive his strongest support in the United States, regionally? Don't think in terms of states, think in terms of regions. Okay, just keep it in your mind, it'll come up later, okay? Um, I'll circle back to it, as they say. Um, I wanna talk about the cultural impact of immigration. Mark talked about the impact on rule of law. Kevin talked about the impact on labor markets. I wanna talk about culture, and specifically, I wanna talk about the assimilation or uh, lack thereof of today's immigrants. Now, whenever anyone publicly worries about today's immigrants assimilating, they are quickly and inevitably confronted with what I call the Irish retort. Now, what is that? The Irish retort goes like this. You know, people used to worry the Irish weren't going to assimilate. People used to worry the Irish weren't going to be good Americans. They weren't going to fit in. And they turned out just fine. And so, so will today's immigrants as well. Well, I mean, the Irish retort has a kind of surface plausibility, right? It, it posits uh, cyclical nativism, right? That, that each generation worries about the current immigrants, but then they turn out just fine and history repeats itself. Needless to say, I am not persuaded by the Irish retort. There are two reasons why. And the first reason is one that I think we, uh, as restrictionists, offer the most often. And that's to say that times have changed. That 100 years ago, we had a more pro-assimilation ethic, whereas today we have multiculturalism. Uh, 100 years ago, we weren't dominated by a single country, you know, the way Mexico has kind of dominated the flow for many years. Uh, we had an opportunity to bond over two world wars and a depression. And most of all, we had an immigration cutoff from 1924 to 1965, which obviously helps with assimilation. So all of those reasons, uh, I mean, all those reasons fit into the times have changed response to the Irish retort. But there's a second response, and you hear it less often, but I think it's just as important to focus on, so I want to do that. The second response is to say, you know, the Irish did not fully assimilate. In fact, no immigrant groups fully assimilate into American life. So the Irish, just like all immigrants, do change America over the long term. How do I know that? Well, historians, political scientists, economists, they've all been putting together this data for a long time, just have to know where to look. So the first thing I wanna talk about is a book by the historian David Hackett Fisher. The book is called Albion's Seed. Now out of curiosity, how many people are familiar with Albion's Seed? Okay, so, oh, okay, for the camera, it looks like maybe a quarter to a third, that's okay. So I'll just briefly summarize uh, the thesis of, of Albion Seed. Basically, Fisher takes colonial America and he divides it into four regions, all of which were populated by different types of English settlers. So in New England, you had the Puritans, who were a very civic culture. In the Middle States, you had the Quakers, peaceable, less interested in politics. In the southern coastal areas, you had the distressed Cavaliers, very hierarchical society. And in Appalachia, you had the Scotch-Irish, uh, a um, rough and tumble culture, so to speak. If uh, you all know about the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know that that came out of that particular culture. So uh, Fisher's thesis is that 
the different cultures within these four regions, and I should say, when he's talking about culture, he's not talking about superficial things. He's talking about a whole bundle of, of sort of social traits, education, civics, trust, crime, government structure, uh, different conceptions of order and power and freedom. He looks at all those things, and his thesis is that those differences that existed in the 1700s persist all the way up until today, despite all the opportunity for change and all the opportunity uh, for melting together. Now, I don't have time for a lot of examples, but the one that I do want to mention is related to that first question I asked you. So let me ask the same question in a slightly different way. Of the four groups I mentioned, which one is most enamored with Donald Trump? Is it the descendants of Puritans, Quakers, Cavaliers, or Scotch-Irish? Oh, you all got it too easily. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, yes, it's the Scotch-Irish. And, of course, they live primarily in Appalachia. That's the area they settled. They also settled parts of, like, the Ozarks. And uh, if you look at the portions of states that are most Trump-friendly, you know, in Ohio, it's the southeast. Why? Well, that's where the you know, Scotch-Irish live. Anyway, my point is that if cultures just melted together into some amorphous mass, then we wouldn't see this connection. We wouldn't see this group of people who came in the 1700s all deciding they love a man who ran for president in 2016. Okay, so you might say, fine. Um, cultural differences are persistent, um, but isn't that only just with the founding? In other words, there's a founder effect Whoever gets here first sets the culture, and then everyone else just kind of assimilates to that. Is that what's going on? Well, uh, not entirely. Um, there was a great article um, in the Journal of Politics, which I wish had more uh, attention paid to it. It was an article that looked at the levels of civic engagement among specific European American groups. So it looked at uh, how much uh, they voted and what neighborhood associations they joined and how much they trust each other and so on. And then they looked at the same measures in Europe and they found that the European Americans had about the same ordering in America as the Europeans did in Europe. And I, I know you don't understand that. I'll, I'll give you a more concrete explanation. What I mean is that in America, Swedish Americans tend to be more civic than French Americans, who are more civic than Italian Americans. If you go to Europe, you find that Swedes are more civic than French, who are more civic than Italians. Again, hundreds of years for this to have gone away, but it still persists in America. Uh, I'll give you another example. Many of you are probably familiar with the Robert Putnam research on diversity and social trust. Well, he defined diversity you know, in racial terms, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. But did you know that you can also find similar results looking at intra-European differences? So there was a paper um, in Social Science Quarterly that looked at rural Iowa towns in the 1990 census. So obviously overwhelmingly white, but not as homogeneous as you might think. Uh, there were different European ancestry groups in Iowa. Uh, what is the largest one? German, German yes, correct. Uh, but there's there more than just Germans. There's English, there's Irish, there's some Dutch, and so on. And what the author of this paper found was that if you define diversity as being not merely German-American, but also a little Dutch-American in there, too, or a little, little Irish-American, you get a similar result that Putnam did when he defined it racially. In other words, effects on social trust and civic engagement. 
So many other papers make similar points. I don't have time to go over them, but the point is cultural differences really do persist. And because assimilation is never complete with any group, it certainly will not be with today's immigrants either. They will change the culture, for better or for worse, just as their predecessors have, but I would say they will change it likely to a greater degree because the initial gap is wider. Think about it, if people from different parts of the same island, meaning Britain, remain different all the way up until today, what about people from different continents? So, um, why should we care? Okay, um, I'll give you a, a micro reason and I'll give you a macro reason, okay? The micro reason is basically that uh, we're talking about culture, we're talking about the stuff of life. We're talking about friends, neighbors, community institutions. When those things change, that can be distressing for the people who are living there. That's how they derive their life satisfaction. And when they see their towns change or the schools change, that can be a real problem for them. This is not just sentimentality, this is real life. But say you're not really into the community thing. Say, you know, just get with the 21st century, Jason, you know, we're, we're the internet age, all my friends are online and so on. Um, well, I would say you, maybe you should care a little more about community, uh, but fine, I'll give you the macro reason, okay? Actually, uh, Senator Scott actually mentioned this last night. He said, and I will say, that um, the fact that America must always be wealthy and always be prosperous is not ordained by God. We're nature, right? Our prosperity, it depends on our founding institutions. It depends on people running them who are supportive culturally of those institutions. And tampering with the culture could affect those institutions, could threaten our prosperity. And I would also point out that our prosperity, especially the extent to which we drive innovation and global trade, is important to the whole world, not just to America. So I would conclude by saying basically that full assimilation is a myth, right? culture persists, and mass immigration will change America. It's inevitable. It will change it perhaps fundamentally and perhaps to the detriment of both Americans and to the world at large. Thank you.